The following discussions are a further look into director Thomas W. Arlington and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the Wind Door. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Through the Window with your friends Greg and Toby. I was just commiserating with Toby that we're really coming down to the end of it now. We're talking about three chapters today. In a couple of weeks, we'll be talking about the final three chapters. And after that, at least one more Skype session where we can talk about the various characters in the larger sense, now that the entirety of the story has been revealed. That means that our final episode on Arlington will come out the final week of October. After one year and eight months, we will have managed to cover five whole books of the New Century Multiverse. Immediately after that is a little fuzzy. After all, maybe my timing is off, and we'll end up talking longer for the last three chapters as well as during the story wrap-up. But, right around that time is when the final episode of the Stone String Maidens audio drama will have aired, at which point the reins will be handed over to us, and Toby and I will lead the various creators and voices of Stone String Maidens in a discussion for a brand new Through the Window-led version of Behind the White Scars. But whether we start off talking about it and then pause so we can do our post-Stonespring content, we will definitely be covering Steamheart next, which is the culmination of all the books we have read so far, and will finish off the Phase 1 arc of the New Century Multiverse. And that feels about as huge as it sounds. Steamheart was like the end of a saga for me, almost. As I've said many times before, my journey began with New Century in 2019. And as I got through every other single published work up till then, I was actually waiting for several weeks for the entirety of Steamheart to come out so that I could absorb it, not all in one go, but close to all in one go. I don't remember now how long it actually took for me to get through the entirety of the Steamheart audio drama. But there is just so much there, and it's going to be interesting to see what we find along the way, Mm. what we end up covering as this is the Avengers to the new century thus far. I've been slowly re-listening to several chapters when I've been in the car for an extended period, and rediscovering parts that I had completely forgot about because I hadn't listened to the audio drama since that very first time when it all came out at the end of 2019. Before Toby and I were even a thing, before we ended up doing the... Interview? The very first interview would have been... Uncivil uh, Outlaw? 
No, 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 no. Uncivil Outlaw was not the first interview. The first interview was, in fact, the third component of Behind the White Scarves in, like, October or November of 2019. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been so long, we don't I even know. remember our own origins at this point. It's just, that's oh, man. just weird. Yeah. <laughs> Those were the days. Like, like, also, it's been long in terms of, oh, look at us, like, how far we've come on this podcast. If you say to someone, oh, we started something in late 2019, it's like, ooh, that, that was a decade ago. It's like, well, you know, it's only been two years. No, 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 no. <laughs> that was a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like it loomed large in our minds because since this was the very first outing with you and me and because it was Steamheart, it felt in a way that we were covering the entire history of New Century up to that point, even though you had been writing about it for a very long time, and I had been cramming madly as just, like, absorbing the content as quickly as I could get it into my head hole. And We've got now, better with our words as time has gone on. <laughs> yes, we have gotten better with our words. Sometimes the caffeine helps, and sometimes it just helps us get the words out faster. Or more enthusiastically, either yeah. or. yeah. It feels weird to say that New Century has ended up becoming like a specialty of ours. We have our Mm. own things that we go through our lives doing, but we've probably spent more time with this one single piece of media than we have with any other media in our lives because we've made a creative process out of talking about this thing that has driven us and inspired us and meant a lot to us on a personal level feels weird to be talking about this now but i guess hey if it's coming up to like in a couple of months time we will be at sort of the two-year anniversary of that initial interview so it is kind of a time for reflection you know you're doing it for a year it's like okay we made it a year you do it for two years you're like oh wow this is actually a thing we're doing like (laughs) It's not a flash in a pan. Like, we're actually committed. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. This is the most committed I've ever been with anything. The idea of something that I've managed to keep doing consistently for two years, that I've had a schedule that I have somehow managed to live up to, even if I color outside the lines every now and then, bring out an episode a couple days late, bring in an episode a couple days early, just, you know, it's a personal milestone at the very least. Mm. And I know mm. that it's been a concern for you as well in terms of the fact that you lost momentum on your original work. But mm. having the two of us together boosting off of each other mm. and bringing in outside sources, that's kind of like there's a responsibility. There's, there's power and responsibility that we have going on here, Toby. Okay, Uncle Ben. Oh, sure. Throw that in my face because I'm the older one here. (laughs) Well, here's the thing, Greg. I knew age was a thing when I saw the new kid who was cast as Spider-Man and I had finally reached the moment where Spider-Man was younger than me. And (laughs) it's one of those things where I realized it's like, oh, wow. For my entire life, I sort of looked up to this character because I assumed like, oh, they're a superhero and they're like the people older than me and then i sort of reached a moment where i'm like 
oh wow like this character is defined by his youth in like at least well okay that's a that's a whole nother can of worms of like the varying ways that peter parker's like has been written over time but like in terms of what they've done in the films just finally getting to the point where i was looking back on spider-man rather than looking ahead to spider-man if that makes sense is a thing anyway this is not new century what are we doing it's okay. We sprawl all over the place, and that's what happened. Is you're going to hear? Let's say we sprawl over, all over the place. This isn't the midnight version of Through the Window. <laughs> sprawl, not. I don't know what word you were thinking of, but let's quickly move on here. <laughs> let's. We got kids listening. Do we? No, I guess no. we do. Willow technically no. does listen to this, so mm. we have to keep it clean for Willow. I, I I fucking agree. Yeah. <laughs> what? What the fuck's the problem? <laughs> oh <Before>? shit! <laughs> God damn! <sighs> I won't pull any more crap. I'm sorry. All right. Before we get into discussing the story or character elements of chapters twenty through twenty-two of Arlington. Once more, it feels odd to come back to this theme of recognizing elements of this story that very clearly seem to draw upon aspects of one of the quintessential geek movies of our time, James Cameron's Aliens. Mm -hmm. The last time we seriously discussed the thematic structure, it was... Well, I was going to say it was all the way back and let them go, but even elements of secret rooms found parts of that particular movie filtering into it. What with the whole thing that Alex coming back to with uh, Abigail pounding on the door of the House of Respect and everything like that. But as I was thinking about these chapters and the amount of action sequences that are a part of what happens next. Mm -hmm. It kind of surprised me to find how these action sequences made me think specifically of moments from Aliens and to a lesser degree Alien before it. The claustrophobic dimly lit battles in the underground tunnels or later on with Harry driving Steamheart feeling not unlike Ripley behind the wheel of the APC. Even though the circumstances themselves are different, the way Alex draws upon the influences of the movies he analyzes on a regular basis really helps bring the story alive for me. I'm not always very good at creating pictures in my head, but if I have something to work with, sometimes the something is just, say... Antonio Torreson's art or art done by other people for the purposes of New Century. But if I can pull upon something that I've seen, mm. very often something that I've seen over and over, then already it's sort of like easier to put together the puzzle pieces. Mm. All I have to do is change a few aesthetic details in my mind, and I, I understand that there is something... It's a conceptual and aesthetic reference point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
from that perspective, the fact that these moments feel inspirational from an influential piece of media, I wanted to point out this is the essence of a good homage, mm-hmm. not a copy and paste from a well-known piece of media, but rather moments that play on intense imagery that draw you in with something that is both familiar and yet at the same time clearly its own thing. This very topic came up recently mm. on the Discord in regards to Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead in that there was so much of it that was literally a direct copy and paste, including mm. dialogue specifically taken from aliens among other places as well like scenarios with the name changed yeah exactly it's it's literally you know filing the serial numbers off and not changing Mm. enough to make it its own thing and Mm. that's it grates on you when that sort of thing isn't done well it feels better when you are drawn into something and you don't necessarily know why And then you realize Mm -hmm. after the fact, oh, there's a common influence here. And you feel heartened and maybe a little bit smart for Mm -hmm. having been able to see it. But it it doesn't feel as much like a direct manipulation or more specifically a cheap manipulation. Mm. Like it's it's putting a flash of the referred piece of media rather than halting the what we were doing beforehand and forcing everyone to just sit in that other piece of media. Which Do you means get it? That, Do you yeah. get it? Do you get it? <laughs> yeah, no, it's certainly a characteristic of Alex's writing to be evocative of familiar cinematic moments without replicating them with such unnecessary precision and mirrored imitation that it becomes derivative we've talked in our back in time plus space shows and our interview with jesse about when alex will really replicate something from a film as a direct reference and i won't say what he is really directly referencing but if you've read that book you'll know exactly what we're referring to and how he approaches the response in that book that readers will have to that and without getting ahead of ourselves drastically in new century chronology and spoiling a lot, I will just leave it at, I think even that still works in that book's favour and isn't too much of a distraction in the end. In these instances, it's more about tapping into the fundamental feeling of those scenes he draws inspiration from, rather than just lifting and inserting surface level details. That's why it feels appropriate and my response ends up being more along the lines of oh yeah this does feel appealingly like this thing that's neat which avoids making me feel i get it you've seen insert pop culture film most likely from the 80s for a book that does that and i know this is a dead horse to beat but it is relevant i would suggest ready player one i know writers that use subtext and they're all cowards This is what's happened now. I I had never heard of these properties beforehand, and now I'm drawing things from the mighty Boosh, and with <laughs> with, with, with no shame. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> Deluxe spaghetti. Oops, Greg. <laughs> it uh, obviously 
when I first started hearing some of these references in New Cent, not New Century. When I first started hearing, <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine like some yeah, of the no, that would be characters that... from uh, like Mighty Bush and New Century? <laughs> no, no, that's that's a little bit too ridiculous for New Century. As early back as I think the Congo episode of School of Movies. I was hearing him put in clips that I had never heard before, but I found fascinating, a little bit obscure at times, but still hilarious. And now I know enough of the context from having them repeated, brought up mm-hmm. on the Discord, and even that one particular moment that I just quoted um, with from Garth Marenghi, it's made its way onto the internet as a meme in and of itself, and I just didn't know that until I actually followed the thread to the primary source and be like, oh, I know what that thing is. I've seen it somewhere else. Where? Oh, right, School of Movies. <laughs> well, that's the thing, is that, like, to come back to what we were talking about, of when you use a direct reference in something like, say, just a meme that you share online, it's like, yeah, you, you get a chuckle out of it. But I think when you're creating a work like just suddenly lifting and transposing scenes essentially like not just details or Mm -hmm. similar themes or things like that just like lifting moments that really like that doesn't delight in the way that you know a well-deployed meme can Mm. delight it just just feels irritable you you, it makes you irritable and i think that's why some people get really put off when something relies on like over relies on references and just inbuilt nostalgia for a dozen different 80s properties yeah i i read ready player one before Mm. it ever showed up anywhere as being like oh yeah we're gonna make a movie out of this it was something that was picked for my book club at the time. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of it before. I'm like, oh, okay, sure. I'll give this thing I've never heard of a try. And there were people that enjoyed it that were on the more geeky spectrum. And there were people that enjoyed it that weren't. Because it was interesting to learn about things they'd never heard of before. But the further I read into that book, where it's just like, dude, all you're doing is literally walking us through the thing. And I recognize enough of this to be like, you're not doing anything different with it at all. You're just relishing in the fact, you know, every moment from this word for word. Mm -hmm. I became thoroughly annoyed I mean, I finished it because I wanted to be able to talk about it with my fellow book club people, but I did not enjoy it, uh, mm. and it didn't get any better. Like, it was it was bad enough of an experience that I never even bothered to watch the movie, and I feel like I'm perfectly justified in that opinion. It was interesting enough to hear Alex and Sharon and other people talk about it. But if a piece of writing is an indication of who they are, then it just seemed clear to me that Ernest Klein is not the kind of person, is not the kind of geek that I would choose to spend any time with. 
or anything like that because it, it the kinds of things that I enjoy discussing with people who I share pop culture in common with there is a certain level of joy that gets introduced by being able to discuss just the things we like or even to analyze them and that book just came across as way too smug put another way a positive geek experience is about selfless enjoyment of a thing making something new learning something new or even just a shared appreciation and coming together of kindred spirits klein's devolution into 80s pop culture feels like a selfish enjoyment. I know more than you, therefore I am better than you. It's the kind of toxicity that leads to claims of fake geek girls. Mm. So, all very good points. I couldn't help but smile as I had a very surreal thought as you were sharing your past experience with Ready Player One. Where it's like, Oh, wow, Greg was in part of a book club. I never knew that about him, I say, two years into a book club <laughs> podcast with him. Uh, too close to see the uh, forest for the trees? Yeah. This is a really interesting tree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, the president of the book club says, like, oh, yeah, I was in a book club once. And the co-president says, you were in a book club? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't have much more to say about the visual imagery that comes from the book. I feel like it speaks for itself, literally, if you're listening to the audio drama. But I wanted to point that out as being a fascinating place to start the discussion from. I'll basically finalize it as saying that the way that it's utilized is essentially to provide a shade of the reference material in the sort of tone of what's happening mm -hmm. there. It's sort of like, it's fleetingly invoked or like not even all that directly. You really have to kind of know them sometimes to be like, oh yeah, this does feel like that moment. It's done with an understanding of the fundamentals of that scene in order to understand how it can add a flavor to the scene that we're experiencing now you move on you enjoy the specifics of what is happening here in new century without wallowing in anything else and you that's exactly how it should be it's sure it adds something it doesn't take away and then you move on it's actually an interesting thing to further talk about and i'm not quite sure how to build upon it yet but I have to wonder that taking in New Century might feel a little bit different if you and I weren't so overwhelmingly aware of the, as you were saying a moment ago, the greater context that we first got to know Alex through his own analysis of a lot of genre movies. And so mm. therefore, if we'd never heard School of Movies at all, we wouldn't have the background to know oh yeah, this piece of media is one he finds personally important. And yet, at the same time, there's a lighter touch to all of it. Mm. We're eventually going to talk about Panther Soul, and mm. I read the entirety of Panther Soul 
Actually, I can't remember now. I would have to go back to our episode where I talked about it to remember the exact sequence of events, but I don't remember whether I saw the movie Ali before or after reading that book. I feel like it might have been after because yes, it it was definitely after now that I'm recalling because I was relating certain aspects of the main character of Cullen Ash to other media properties. And it wasn't until I saw Ali specifically in the lead up to listening to Alex talk about the movie Ali that I realized, oh, this was the major influence he was drawing upon all along. I can see the through line now. Mm. So understanding where someone's influences come from is helpful if it's done right. Mm. And if it's done wrong, then it comes across exactly like Ready Player One came across to me. There's always going to be this practice that people have in whether it's historical or contemporary of familiarizing yourself with an author or an artist or anything like that because it makes you realize oh they have a predilection for this or they were very like moved by that and it means that once you start reading it you start seeing those little signs here there and everywhere and it just keeps coming up and it's sort of just this thing that occurs naturally and for us we had this unique position where we were familiar with uh, his insights into like film and storytelling just in general before we started like doing like practicing our own analysis mm. on his uh, efforts to put together stories so it's a chicken before the egg it's the egg before the chicken it's this thing that means that at what you are for me my experience with reading new century is that i am at once aware of ah yes this like this fits with what i remember alex discussing at one point on this particular show or something like that but at the same time i am not only experiencing that i'm also managing to let that kind of drift away a lot of the time mm. and just sit in the story as it happens and experience it as all the pieces come together and i think that is testament to the pieces fitting coherently and cohesively it's not just a awkward jigsaw puzzle of a bunch of different elements that someone wants to put together but doesn't necessarily mm. think about how they can fit together so I think that's what I get from that is that because we've listened to so many episodes of Alex's various podcasts over the years, we do get a sense of there's an insight that we have there. But at the same time, the fact that that isn't more jarring is probably just a sense of a sign that there is work and consideration put into making these stories fit and work without having that requirement be there. We've been talking a lot about the metafiction in mm. regards to this <laughs> now. I obviously want to get to start talking about the elements of the book itself again, mm. but something you just said actually made everything click into place for me, which is that Ooh. I don't necessarily know 
what our analysis of these stories would be like if we didn't have School of Movies as a primer, as a building block for everything else. But it occurs to me that if we hadn't heard of School of Movies, then honestly, Through the Window wouldn't have ever even have existed because mm -hmm. that helped us develop the language we needed in order to be able to talk about New Century in a properly thorough way. I don't know if some of these things would have occurred to us or if we would have found the right language mm. had we never been fed by and inspired by and taught by someone who had been doing this for years and years on end and had mm. a love of his craft, which inspired in us a love of our craft. Mm. Well, that's the thing is that I view through the window as much less of a written and sort of concrete statement and thesis on new century. That's not what it has ever been. And I don't really want it to ever be that mm. it's a conversation. It's a conversation mm. among ourselves. It's a conversation with other people. It's an open conversation with anyone who gets a similar amount of joy of reading these books and thinking about them and talking with other people. And it's also a conversation between us and Alex, whether that's on mm. a recorded interview or off the interviews and just our own friendships with him. And that's why I really value it as a presence because it's not a dissertation that we have references to and things that we are putting together from a outside perspective where we can keep a sort of unbiased thing of it. It is this conversation that evolves and is ongoing and it's recorded and we have we were talking about how much of a backlog we have of our many, many conversations it's alive and that's why it's been as fulfilling as it has been these last two years communication son it's going to be our salvation oh bravo sir <laughs> ah here i was literally scrolling back to that place just to make sure that i used the exact words that the story did so what you what you don't see, uh, dear listener, is that as Greg and I are talking, we have, whether physical or digital, copies of the various books, and we're just frantically flicking pages, just like looking for the ideal quote and going like, uh, uh -huh. I mean, we don't want to embarrass ourselves any more than we do by suddenly forgetting something, some critical thing <laughs> that's going to make us look like fools inside of our own podcast let's let's move Look, on I, I i don't want to do that that doesn't stop that from happening yeah yeah fair enough chapter 20 mm -hmm. chapter 20 is where we finally come to it mm -hmm. a major revelation from within thomas himself as thomas and sarah tell the story of how they met and messily acquired their freedom here the influence that most readily comes to mind is Django Unchained, although in this case it's told entirely as a duly narrated backstory rather than flashback or, say, as its own novel. In this way, I feel like 
the story that they're telling is superior to its influence. It manages to tell a compelling story without fetishizing black pain or violence in the way Tarantino does in the movie and so often happens in many other pieces of media. It gives the story proper respect and significantly shows Sarah Arlington as an active participant in winning her own freedom, whether it's forging documents or even taking up a gun herself against their enemies. Also, in addition to everything else, we feel sympathy for Thomas's bloody catharsis even as we can appreciate the regret he feels for his choices. How he specifically says that in different circumstances, he would have made different decisions, decisions that wouldn't have led them to the place they're in right now. But this thing that Thomas and Sarah do with everybody else's witnesses, Frank, Frederick, Agent Lee, it's why I call this trio of chapters rally because this is the beginning this story needs to come out to unblock the thing that's holding them back so that they can actually move forward at this point Mm -hmm. can't afford to have thomas in this place where he's not at his best because he's weighed down by his past Mm. Sarah being an active participant in the recollection of these chapters does a lot to establish the tone of the story that is relayed in this chapter. If it were just Thomas, not only would it come across as if everything that happened was a result of just his agency, which is not only something you want to avoid, but it's also patently untrue based on what we hear in this chapter. But is stressed attitude at the start of this chapter where he was saying all right fine fuck it tell the damn story nothing matters now like it might have a very it might have set a very different tone without sarah tempering his ire towards the circumstances of both their past and their present it makes it something shared between them both the sweet and tender love of those formative moments of their relationship and the conception of truth in Harry, also the trauma they experience at the hands of Sarah's captors, and as well as the of the frenzied experience of killing their pursuers. They each killed one man, after all. The telling of the story by both of them is so important, because it not only provides context and backstory, but it's kind of exactly what Thomas needs right now in order to recenter. He's felt powerless, angry, and isolated, and Sarah reminds him how he is going to get through this the same way that they have done from the beginning, working together, supporting one another, and drawing strength from each other's influence. It's an intriguing way to put it, and goes a little bit hand-in-hand with thoughts that I'm definitely going to save for the end of our discussion of Arlington. But you're absolutely right in that the framing of this story as being not something that merely Thomas did, but is something that Thomas and Sarah did together, 
reminds him of what he needs to know, that everything is not all on his shoulders. And it's only through sharing the burden around with those present and working together afterwards is how they're going to do it. Mm. He feels at his lowest point because he thinks on some level that he's the one that has to resolve this issue. Mm. But it's not him alone that gets them out of the tunnels and helps them to deal with the rioting and the Wendigo and everything else up on the surface. It is only because they are able to rally together allies, tell them what they need to do, and then stand out of the way and let them do these things in order to succeed. Mm. Obviously, we'll talk more about General Curtis in a second, but it's not simply that he is someone that they have rallied to their side in order to achieve the goals for the betterment of the nation and for the betterment of its people, but because General Curtis is the right man for the job and is very good at doing the task that the Arlington set him to. Mm. It reminds me a lot of the denouement of the original Incredibles where mm. the oh, yeah. like Helen is saying to Bob, I have to do this alone. What is this to you, playtime? No. So you can be Mr. Incredible again? No. Then what? What is it? I'm not... Not what? I'm, I'm not strong enough. Strong enough, and this will make you stronger? Yes. No. That's what this is? Some sort of workout? I can't lose you again. I can't. Not again. I'm not strong enough. If we work together, you won't have to be. I don't know what will happen. Hey, we're superheroes. What could happen? That's what I get from this, is that it's not a case of they say that Thomas has to rise above this and find some reserve of power deep inside in order to like overcome these troubles. It's that these troubles are hard, but we are going to endure this and we're going to prove together that this is the right thing that we are doing the right thing it's a wonderful moment of unification which i think mm -hmm. rally is the perfect word for it because it's you can't rally alone you yeah. rally together yeah <laughs> I, I, that that is that is some very clever vocabulary analysis there i i picked the word but you're absolutely right that the whole idea of a rally implies a group rather than mm. an individual some of what we've just been discussing there is part of it, it actually ties in very neatly with the next moment that i want to discuss in regards to thomas in chapter 20 on the face of it the way they explain what happened and the way it happened and who it happened to, we can understand why Thomas and Sarah would not want the story of their escape to get out. It did take me a while to understand why there might have been such tension between Frank and Thomas over Frank finding out the truth. 
as it turned out, I, as I've mentioned before, have been doing a full rewatch of The West Wing at my mom's house. Put a penny in, Put the, a penny jar. in the jar. And it provided me with some relevant insight. In season three of the show, there is an episode wherein a political enemy of the Bartlett administration is about to reveal something scandalous during congressional hearings in which the president's chief of staff is being questioned. The enemy in question knows that Leo McGarry, a known alcoholic, fell off the wagon hard during the first presidential campaign and that revealing this would likely result in people demanding his resignation. He could have told his lawyer in the hope that she could prepare him for this, but he was naturally humiliated by that lapse and didn't want it to affect her opinion of him. In his own words, when I got out of rehab, my friends embraced me. When you relapse, it's not like that. Get away from me. That's what it's like. In revisiting this moment from the show, I can see why Thomas would be reluctant to reveal the details of what happened. As someone that put so much stock into remaining in control, he felt humiliated and exposed after the Roach incident because that circumstance was beyond his control. Emotion was driving his reaction, as so often happens. And the reason why this connects back to the stuff you were talking about earlier is that in the show in question, Leo McGarry feels a great deal of responsibility for President Bartlett due to the closeness of their relationship. Leo is the president's chief of staff essentially because he is his best friend. And mm. the idea of taking on whatever personal pain you have to in order to avoid letting someone else down that's a recurring motif in the West Wing, and I think we can definitely see that there are a lot of people, his wife, his family, and even a good man like Frank, that he doesn't want to let down. Above and beyond the fact that he's carrying all of this weight in the hopes that the United States would survive in the hopes that all of them will survive. I think that the tension comes from what we've discussed a lot throughout this series regarding the trust between Thomas and Frank being less cemented because this is still the early days of their relationship. I don't think that Thomas would suspect Frank of leaking it out if he were told, or worse, blackmailing and turning on him and Sarah. But even so, this is one of the most vulnerable truths at Thomas's core and having that exploited by someone right in front of Frank and showing someone under his command that Thomas was unequivocally compromised is bound to leave Thomas feeling immense shame. Having that be combined with the sharp frustration at this indignity and a hundred other insanities of their present circumstances means that Thomas is going to be reticent to talk about this with Frank and too preoccupied with his directionless fury to be of much help when he is communicating. And as Frank says, he really needs to know all of this so he Frank can be better positioned to help. 
So that creates a real problem between the two of them before this scene. It also occurs to me that I think Sarah would have had less of an issue revealing this because in her own mind, she already felt out what kind of a person Frank was Mm. thanks to that conversation they had many chapters ago in regards to why Frank made the decisions he did to pull a gun on a respected superior that had betrayed the RSA through their seditious actions. But while Sarah is the one who naturally wants to trust, Thomas is the one who naturally wants to distrust. And even with everything that's happened between them so far, even with as much that Thomas wants to let people in because he knows that's the best way to get the work done, that his own nature, understandable nature, rebels against it in certain circumstances. And he possibly worries that if he is revealed to be morally compromised as opposed to reputationally compromised, that it will cause even a good man like Frank to turn away from him. Mm. There's a tension not just between Thomas and Frank, but within Thomas himself, because he's been on record multiple times before to say that what he's doing for America is not about him. He's not doing Mm. this so that people and historians know the name Thomas Arlington. He, in many ways, would be content to just put the cartographer's handbook out there without his name. He says as such in this book. But at the same time, the idea of what others will judge of him Mm. is something that I think does potentially worry Thomas, or at least it's something that he's dealing with, especially because he is having to admit all of this in front of his mentor. Like, Frederick yes. is yes, right there. Yes, absolutely right. I... Yeah. Wow, I talk about missing the forest for the trees there. It, mm. you know, it's We're one so thing... focused on Frank, but yeah. like Frederick is there too. And I think it, for Frank, it boils down to the fact that Thomas didn't know what to do, so he did the only thing he knew how to do, and he did it in front of someone who is a high-ranking officer in the RSA, and also someone at the start of the book, he said, I picked you out because, you know, you're commendable, you're, you have all the practical talents for the job, but you also have a lot of the sort of respectability and strength of character. So, and we've also, lest we forget, there was a moment earlier on when Frank had a sort of didn't necessarily think about his words and when he was talking about making the decision about ending their children's lives and it kind of gets to Thomas a bit that there is this push and pull throughout the book of the moral judgments that Frank has on Thomas even though like in Frank's point of view Frank doesn't like it's not his place he's not there to like judge Thomas, that's the furthest thing from his mind. No, he's always always been a good soldier. Yeah, but the thing is that Thomas, like, part of the reason he recruited Frank was because he didn't just want a bodyguard, he wanted an extra pair of eyes on this. So if Mm. this extra perspective in the room 
is not only seeing the plan and the forward momentum and the details of decision, important decisions for the country, but he's also seeing these vulnerabilities of Thomas. I think that concerns him, even mm. though that's not what Frank wants. And yeah, I've, I've gone over a lot because this is everything to do with Frank, but like I brought up Frederick and then didn't explore any of that. So I'm going to shut up for now and turn the table over to you. Well, I mean, I think that the very fact that you put your finger on it there, it speaks for itself in terms of it's bad enough that Frank had to witness it, but that he now has to talk about it in front of his mentor, as you say, that potentially frightens him even more. If he's trying to get Frederick Douglass to take up the mantle and actually be president of the United States... To believe in what they're doing. Mm-hmm, yeah, and to show himself off as being morally compromised, that's potentially heralds the destruction of everything. Mm. If he can't even get people who would be inclined to follow him to go along with his lead, then what, what is the point? Mind, Thomas's belief in the idea of shaming himself in front of Douglas may not be rational. I had a chance to read a bit of a paper by a woman named Maria Choi called Necessary Violence in Frederick Douglass's Narrative. It's specifically referring to an autobiography written by Douglass called Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, written by himself. The paper writer extrapolates from the work that since Douglas talked about how violence is the means by which white men kept black people as slaves, that violence might be needful to also liberate them. A direct quote says, Although Douglas does not explicitly state in his narrative that slaves should engage in violence towards their masters, his personal journey to freedom demonstrates his belief that violence in response to slavery is not only understandable, but necessary to bring about change. That said, the story itself illustrates that Thomas did everything he could to avoid violence in the beginning. Maybe the issue is not the violence itself, but more the loss of control. Chaos, we already know, is what Thomas fears most. A lot of all of this, I believe, is just internal. It is... Mm. As the saying goes, we are always our own worst enemies. Mm. And I'm not sure that there was ever any real chance of Frederick or Frank castigating him for his choices. Mm. The important thing is that Thomas believes it. And we always believe that sometimes the things we do will cause others to turn away from us because of our own shame. Yeah, and... Thomas was introduced to us in this series as someone who is asking the country, the people of this country, to be the best versions of themselves so that they mm. can go forward and build this new century. And as such, of course, he is going to ask the very same, if not more, for himself, that he be the very best. If he has mm. to confront this moment of his life something that he admits he took cathartic terrible like satisfaction in the enacting of it but still regrets it and some parts of him think 
he likes to think would have made different decisions in different circumstances, he is going to see that and deeply regret it. Like, I can't even really fathom what that is at a point when achieving your goals already feels so difficult and so, like, enervating. Yeah, it's getting further and further out of reach and this feels like something that might make him worry was this ever within reach to begin with mm. i swear that i don't try to end episodes on a downbeat but when i'm dividing up content among two episodes i'm looking for the end of a thought or topic and trying to not get into one that goes on too long so that the next episode ends up lopsided having said that it's hard to avoid ending on weighty topics when a story that is full of them to begin with is coming to a head like it is. To close us out, I thought about trying to find a more cheerful song to end us on, but that isn't necessarily properly thematic. So instead, let us find Catharsis a different way. I was familiar with the indie band Poets of the Fall for a while, all the way back in the early 2000s thanks to them writing a song for the video game Max Payne 2 called the Late Goodbye. The lyrics of that song made an astonishing appearance in the show notes of one of the YouTube creators many of us follow, implicitly pretentious, during their show on the new Black Widow movie. But previous to that, their work showed up in a different video game that came out recently called Control. While one of their recent works shows up in the game as themselves, Poets of the Fall, they also wrote a new song for the game, credited as a new band native to the universe of the game. So until next time, this is the Old Gods of Asgard, with a message for all of us.